we will be reading Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And have, having not done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Great joy to be with you today. I haven't gotten used to that yet. <laughs> um, will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, as we come to this passage, as we uh, get a glimpse of what spiritual conflict looks like as we come to understand that there is real war out there. There's a real battle that's waging in this world that there are forces of darkness that want to destroy us, that want to destroy our faith and your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we stand in your righteousness, that we stand in Christ, that we are resurrected in him, that we have that resurrection power in us, that our hearts are filled with your spirit, that we are seated at the right hand, we are in Christ, seated at the right hand of God the Father who reigns on high. We thank you that we have that hope. Would you strengthen us? Would you encourage us today? May your word uh, ring true in our hearts and may your spirit illuminate it, that we might see Christ in all his glory. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, it's a great joy to be with you guys. Um, I'm real privileged to be finishing up Ephesians with you. Uh, what a wonderful book. I hope it's been rich for you as you uh, hear from the Apostle Paul and his letter to a church that he planted. Um, I hope that it's encouraged you and strengthened you. Uh, Paul ends his letter with this uh, great charge, this great encouragement to the church to stand firm in the spiritual conflict that's raging about them. As Mike said, uh, my wife and I were, um, were missionaries to, uh, to India about uh, 2010, uh, finished up RTS here at RTS uh, Orlando at the seminary, and we moved out to India, and uh, I'll never forget my first, uh, first few months were in a small local church, local language church, uh, in a very poor urban community in the city that we were living in. And there's a certain season during this, this uh, church's ministry that I'll remember that where the church came under incredible spiritual attack. Time after time, individuals in the church 
were getting demon-possessed. And I remember this one particular time, this young man who had been coming to the church, who was from a Muslim background, and the pastor of the church, uh, uh, is a Presbyterian church, by the way, the pastor of the church, we'll call him, um, his name is Pastor Raj, and, and he was vigilant in prayer, vigilant in ministering to these people who were coming under demon possession and demon attack. And there's this particular Muslim background man who succumbed to demon possession, and it was really serious. He, he, he was perfectly healthy otherwise, but was comatose for over a week, and Pastor Raj would go to him day after day, sit by this man's bedside and pray and struggle and sing and read scripture. Nothing would happen. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced that in Baldwin Park or in Winter Park, um, Orlando. It was very new to me, very new experience for me. And this didn't seem like your garden variety type of demon. This, was, uh, this seemed really serious. And so I remember one day when Paul, uh, Pastor Raj calls me and says, Jonathan, would you come help me? I don't really know what to do. And here I am, fresh out of seminary. Um, yeah, I got some Greek I could give you. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't have exorcism class at, at RTS. And struggling not, you know, with fear, legit fear, to go and, and, and be by this man's bedside as this man struggles. And, and, and the guy is, is speaking in languages that he didn't know. He's speaking knowledge that he didn't have in voices that weren't his own. I was afraid that he would say, I've heard of Jesus, I've heard of Paul, but who are you? What if he said that? I'm of no significance. But I was, I was concerned, I was afraid, and maybe, maybe it's hard for us to understand that. Maybe it's hard for us to even conceive of something like that, living in a very materialist and me mechanistic Western world that we live in it. But the reason I'm telling this story is because I think our Indian brothers and sisters and much of the church around the world, and certainly Paul the Apostle, have a perspective. They have, they, have a, they have a privilege or a benefit that we don't have because they have a perspective on spiritual warfare that a lot of us miss in the West. They live in a world where the spiritual darkness around them is palpable, where there's a real sense of that, that waging war because it's right there in front of them. And we don't get to see that very often with our eyes, at least like that. And so we can sometimes begin to think that maybe it's not real. Maybe it's too far removed from us that it doesn't really affect us. Or maybe we're just too distracted by our cell phones and our TV and our busyness of life that we don't notice the cosmic conflict that's going on. And what Paul wants you to know today is that this is real, that there is a real cosmic conflict, that, that there's a very real enemy of Jesus, and the devil will and is using every means necessary to destroy your faith and all the faith of believers in Jesus. And Paul wants you to know how to engage in this conflict in this war. And there are four questions that this passage answers for us. You can take notes in your bulletin if you like, but four things he answers for us. Who are we at war with? Second, what has God given us 
for the battle. Third, how do we fight the battle? And fourth, why? Why do we even bother? Why do we fight the battle? First, who are we at war with? Look at verses 10 to 12 with me. The first question that we really need to answer, especially if if you're not a believer yet in Jesus, but even if you are a Christian, this is pertinent to you, where does evil come from in the world? Where does evil come from in the world? And I just want to propose quickly, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but three common views that you'll see around the world, a lot of them represented here in the States, uh, but three views that you'll see about where evil comes from in the world. The first view, quite common, uh, that you'll see around us is that, is that evil is seen as something out there. Evil is systemic. It's institutionalized. It's not in here. It's out there. It's, 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 it's as if evil has been baked into the cultural artifacts of a nation. And this view sees individual people as essentially good, but it's the systems that are broken. It's the cultures that are evil. We need to protect from those things. Second view sees evil primarily within. Evil is baked into human nature. Evil hearts, evil ideas. People are essentially bad. It's not so much the systems and the culture that's the problem, it's us. There's a third view, one that you see more in pagan countries around the world today. A highly suspicious view that sees evil as existing in another realm of demons and spirits, and neither the culture nor the individual is responsible for the evil, but the spiritual forces of darkness are there to manipulate and exert power over people and systems over the world, and that's how they, in, in, that's how they influence and manifest. So which of those three views is right? Well, on one, on one hand, they're all wrong, but they all contain an aspect of a much fuller view of evil that the Bible explains. Many places in the world, the flesh and the devil are allied against us and against Jesus and his kingdom, and they will stop at nothing in any means possible to destroy your faith. All these things, and behind the scenes, what we see from Paul is that the devil and the forces of darkness are, are exerting their force, their power through these things to destroy our faith. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are four things that this verse tells us about our enemy. First, our enemy is spiritual, not physical. This is not a flesh and blood conflict. Paul is, is not saying the enemy is the other political party out there. Paul had a ton of flesh and blood conflict, didn't he? In fact, this, this letter, Ephesians, he's writing from prison, right? He's writing from prison. He wrote a bunch of his letters from prison, and he never once said that his enemy was Nero, the emperor of Rome. Throughout Acts, we see this many times, that, this, that there is real flesh and blood conflict that Paul is engaged in with political authorities, with other Christians. And so Paul is not immune to interpersonal 
conflict with other people. He's not saying that people have no culpability, but he's saying that the battle is chiefly not with people, but with forces that will use those people to weaken the faith that is within us through distractions, through persecution, through personal attacks, whatever it may be, through casting doubts, through casting shadows on the grace of God that we have, there are spiritual forces behind the conflict that you are facing, whatever that might be. Secondly, he says that they are powerful. They have real authority. Listen to the language that he uses to name them. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in heavenly places. These are not minions. They have real authority and real power. The devil is real, personal, powerful. There is an organized hierarchical power structure of demons and evil spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Now you might be asking, doesn't Christ's victory on the cross defeat the devil? Is Paul propounding some sort of dualism here by talking about this? No, he's not. These forces are indeed subordinate to God. They have been restrained. They have been defeated on the cross of Christ. But what Paul wants to get across is that they still have very real power and they can do very real damage to you and your faith in Jesus. The third thing that he says about these, these forces, is this enemy, is that, that they are evil. They are spiritual forces of evil bent on your destruction. There is no neutral ground in this battle. There is no such thing as no man's land. Many of us live our Christian lives like me surfing. I get out in the waves, waiting for the wave, waiting, waiting, waiting. And before I know it, I'm a mile down the beach. Never happened to you? We, the Christian life doesn't drift towards holiness and sanctification, does it? We always drift away from where we want to be. You struggle towards sanctification. You struggle towards, uh, you struggle towards growth. The currents of evil in this world are strong, and they pull us away from where we want to be. Nobody ever coasts across the finish line of the Christian life. It's a struggle. It's a fight. There is no neutral ground. And, and, and what we need to understand is that these, these, these forces, these currents of evil in the world are strong and they are pulling you. If your strategy is just to kind of remain neutral and coast, you're going to end up far from where you want to be. The Puritan John Owen said, you better be mortifying sin or it's going to be mortifying you. The fourth thing that we learn about this enemy. They're not just strong, but they're smart. They're strategic, and they're well-trained. Look what he said. He's, he says they're scheming. The devil has schemes. The devil's got PowerPoint presentations. He's got Venn diagrams, and he's got your picture on a corkboard somewhere. He's got an idea of what he wants to do to destroy your faith. It's not willy-nilly for him. Do you really think that all of the, 
the mask wars in worship, you know, should we wear masks or should we not wear masks? Do you think that just materialized out of thin air? That was planned. He's really good at that kind of stuff. He's been doing it for thousands of years. He knows what he is up to doing these types of things. Let me give you another example of a scheme of the devil. One of his most effectual methods of destroying your faith is to instill doubts about the goodness of God. Maybe that's where you are right now or you've been there before, wrestling with the goodness of God. But isn't that the original sin of Genesis 3? Asking the question, asking the question, deceiving us into believing that God is withholding something good from you. And I think in the face of this worldwide pandemic, the loss of jobs, the loss of loved ones, political instability, financial instability, so many things that have been going on, so many structures that we depended on, humanly speaking, crumbling around us. It's so easy for us to doubt that God is good and indeed loves us and indeed is in control of all things, isn't it? And that's his strategy, to cast a shadow of doubt on your faith. It's subtle, isn't it? It's subtle, but it wreaks havoc on our lives. But the good news is that Paul doesn't stop there with this fearful and really significant description of our enemy. He goes on to say that God has given us something for this battle. That's our next point. What has God given us? Look at verses 13 to 18. Thank Thanks be to God, he has not left us to ourselves. If he had left us to ourselves, it would be a genocide. uh, Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. How do you fight a battle if you're dead? You don't. But God has given us something to equip us for this battle. Now, this is quite the list of armor. And this could be many different sermons probably, but I'm I'm gonna summarize it for you and tell you here is what you need to know about it about the armor of God that he lists in these verses. First, it is God's armor, not yours. The minute you engage spiritual warfare, standing in the breastplate of your own righteousness is the minute you lose the battle. The minute you depend on the strength of your shield of faith as opposed to the object of your faith, as the means to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one is the minute those darts sink deep into your flesh. Listen, friends, if you are thinking that success in the Christian life depends upon you, you need to be comforted by these words and your, your opinion or your thought of, what, of, of, of where your dependence should lie from Paul right here Listen to, listen to this. Listen to these words. Paul says, be strong in what? In the Lord. And in the strength of what? His might. It's not impossible to overstate the importance of this, the significance of this for your life. Going out to battle in God's strength or my strength makes all the difference in the world. But the second thing about this armor that you need to know is that God is the ultimate warrior. Paul rarely 
says anything in his, New Test- in, in, in his New Testament letters without referencing something from the Old Testament. And Isaiah 59 and 60 form the backdrop of Paul's theology for Ephesians 5 and 6. Listen to this, Isaiah 59 in particular. You can flip there in your Bibles if you want. <clears throat> but uh, Isaiah 59, Paul, uh, Isaiah says this in verse 2, where he's showing that we are separated from God because of our sins. He says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And the writer goes on to say that salvation is far from us because we live in darkness. There's no hope for humanity. But then verse 15 of Isaiah 59 says this, and listen to this. This is how and why we should have hope. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then in his own, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness, he put on righteousness as, a, as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is where Paul is getting his language. In Ephesians 6, the language of the armor of God. And what he's saying is that you and I are the beneficiaries of a cosmic rescue operation. Once held captive to sin and darkness and death, God stepped in and fought for you when you could not fight for yourself because he loved you, because he wanted to redeem you, Friends, remember this when you're struggling. This should press you deeper into his love for you, deeper into his grace for you, that God fights for you. He has fought for you. Remember, dear friends, God's will to save is far greater than his will to judge. And his ability to bring those things to pass is far greater than the, than the devil's ability to thwart it. God fights for you. But the third thing about the armor that you need to know is that you need to use it. Over and over and over again, Paul says, put it on. Put it on. Stand in it. Why? You will lead a very defeated Christian life if you don't use what God has given you to strengthen your faith and to stand firm against the enemy. Imagine the Marine Corps sending out their soldiers to fight a war and telling them you're just going to learn it on the field. You're just going to learn it in the middle of the conflict. That's absolutely stupid. But that's how so many of us treat spiritual warfare. We only get on our knees when things get hot, right? When things are hard. You can't say, hold on, devil. I'm going to go put on my armor. It's already too late. But we need to take the the means of grace that God has given us. Give up our man-centered strategies. Depend on God to use those means of grace daily in preparing ourselves for this fight. We need to use what God has given us. Friends, I guarantee you that the devil woke up before you did this morning. I guarantee you that he started working on your heart 
casting doubt, a shadow of doubt over the promises of God in your life, encouraging you to forget who you are in Christ, I guarantee you that he's working overtime on your heart before your eyelids even open in the morning. We need to use what God has given us to fight him. The third thing that I want to point out in this passage, who our enemy is, what God has given us, how do we fight in this battle? And this is really where the application comes in. Look at verse 18 18 to 20 with me. And this is where Paul really unpacks for us how we fight the battle in the day-to-day, you know, pedestrian lives that we live. The first thing he says is that we are to keep alert with all perseverance. Look at verse 18. Keep alert with all perseverance. Friends, if you hear nothing else, my goal today is for you to be awakened to this reality of spiritual warfare, that we would stop sleeping on this point, that we would be awakened to this reality and persevere in the battle within the means that God provides, to be proactive, to use those means of grace in your life, the means that God has appointed for your good and your growth. There's no shortcut to avenger status as a spiritual warrior. The Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. It's plotting. It's prayer. It's reading the Bible. It's it's doing the things that Paul lists here. You know, one of the most tried and true tactics of the devil is to go after your marriage if you're married. Maggie and I are coming up on 15 years of marriage. And one thing that I'm learning, and it's taken me a long time to learn this, is that when our marriage is strong, we can handle so much more in the world that's thrown at us. But when our marriage is weak, when we're struggling, it just compounds the trials. It, 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 it causes a cycle of dysfunction in, my, in our lives, in our spirituality, in, in our marriage, in our family. What normally would be a four or a five out there all of a sudden becomes a 10, right? Because our marriage is struggling. The point is, is be proactive with it. A lot of us treat our marriage like, like, the, like we treat maintenance with your car. You only do something when the lights come on on the dashboard. It needs constant work, doesn't it? it needs, I know it does. It needs constant work. And a great application for this practically is, is, is there's, Mike tells me there's a, married, a marriage conference coming up or marriage study that's coming up. There's an opportunity for you to work on that to be proactive, to use the means that God's, God has given to work on that. The second thing that Paul talks about, he calls us to pray. He calls us to be pers- perseverant in prayer. Why? It's not because we believe in the power of prayer, but it's because we believe in the power of God. That's why we pray. God's got this. He's got this. You have wonderful opportunities in this church to join prayer groups, to join, to take home lists of your missionaries, to pray for them at your family devotions, to pray for your pastor and your elders, to pray for other churches in your city, to pray for the lost ones in your family, to know the goodness of Jesus, to pray for your kids. Because we believe that prayer works because God works, because God is powerful. Paul says, pray at all times. Give God no rest with your prayers. He wants you to be relentless because he delights in your persistence of prayer. 
Third, look at verse 19. Paul desires words to be given to him that he might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Part of being prepared for spiritual warfare is to be immersed in the word of God, to let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Listen, what happened to Jesus at the greatest spiritual conflict of his life? As he was hanging on the cross, being crucified, as the shadow was cast upon the land, as his father turned his back on his own son, what was it that bubbled up out of the heart of Jesus? It was scripture. It was scripture, it was God's word. How different would it be if when I'm angry at my kids, it was scripture that bubbled out? How different would it be if when I was fighting with my wife, it was God's word, it was gospel that spilled forth from my heart? How different would that be when we're faced with conflict if the word of Christ that was dwelling richly in us was what came forth to bring peace and healing rather than our own anger, frustration, cursing, whatever it may be? How different would it be? And finally, Paul shows us that if, shows us that, that for us to stand firm and to persevere, we need to do it together. Friends, the Christian life isn't the Lone Ranger. It's not Rambo. The Christian life is the fellowship of the ring. The Christian life is the band of brothers. No one ever crossed the Jordan flying solo. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You know those Animal Planet videos of lions and tigers attacking a wild herd of, of gazelles? Who do the prowling lions go after? Do they jump in the middle of the herd? No, they get the stragglers. They go after the stragglers who are falling behind. Friends, if you've been a, a member of a church, you know how this happens. Somebody, either by their sin or by the sin of others in the church, gets pushed to the outskirts. And they slowly get pushed further and further away from the church. And pretty soon that bitterness or whatever was a mild wound festers and the devil implants thoughts of doubt and anger and that anger grows and the bitterness blossoms. And, and before you know it, that particular individual's faith is shipwrecked. And many times they take two or three or more people with them. That's how, that's how it works. That's why we need community. We need to be amongst friends. We need to pray together, read the Bible together. We know that we need this. Your church has community groups, right? It's a great time, a great opportunity to fight this battle together, standing side by side in the strength of the Spirit. So we talked about who our enemy is, what God has given us to fight the battle, uh, how we fight it, with the means of grace? And thirdly, why should we fight? And I'll end with this. Where do we get the courage, the perseverance, the wherewithal, the strength to continue in the fight? Why not just give up? I'll never forget, as a pastor of a church in India, one Sunday, <clears throat> um, the joy that this young couple had as they came to me to tell me that they were finally pregnant. A boy's name was Ashish, the girl's name was Sarah, and uh, they were just thrilled to finally be pregnant after service we prayed together just rejoicing 
that the Lord had given them this, uh, this baby in her womb that they'd been praying for for so long. Ashish uh, was a new believer. Uh, their, their marriage was actually the first wedding of our, of our church plant. Ashish was a new believer, came from a Hindu background. When he first came to Jesus, his stepmother uh, threatened him. Now, many of you coming to Jesus might not feel the same type of oppression and conflict when you become Christians, but in many parts of the world, when you, leave, when you become a Christian, you're leaving something else, and it creates great conflict. And when he became a Christian, he was leaving Hinduism and a tradition, thousand year old, thousands of year old tradition of his family. And his stepmother said to him, if you become a Christian, I will take everything from you. And he said, I'm still going to be a Christian. So she sued him for all of his inheritance, which included land, a house, and a lot of investments. And he lost everything to follow Jesus. Well, he got married to Sarah, this Christian girl from our, from our church. They, um, she, uh, his stepmother was furious. She, she said, if you marry this Christian woman, I will curse you. And she placed a curse on him and, said, I will, and she said that may your first son die. That was the curse she placed on him. She was into Hindu witchcraft and stuff. Well, you can imagine the anxiety that Ashish and Sarah felt as this baby grew within her womb, knowing that there was a curse that his, his stepmother placed upon them. And we prayed for that little boy. But that little boy was born at 26 weeks. His name was Isaac. And the little guy fought for his life day after day in the NICU of the hospital. Our whole church prayed and fasted, took turns around the clock with them at the hospital. And we even baptized him in his little incubator or whatever it's called in the NICU. But eventually he gave up and he died after a month of fighting. And as you can imagine, this really shook Ashish's new faith. And I'll never forget the question he asked me. It shook, it shook mine. It is one of the hardest things I could ever imagine. And I can, I'll never forget the question that he asked me. He said, I thought Jesus was more powerful than the curse. I thought Jesus was more powerful than that curse that took my boy. And it was one of those moments that God really did give me words to say because I was at an utter loss. And I said, I don't know why God allowed this to happen to your son, but I know for a fact that the curse that took Isaac's body cannot touch Isaac's soul. Isaac will rise again to everlasting life. Because we believe that Jesus, our Savior, not only took the curse upon himself, but Galatians says that he became a curse for us. He became a curse for us on the cross. So when you see that, and when you begin to see what Jesus did for you, that, that he took off his armor, and took the full, the full brunt of the fiery darts of the evil one into his flesh. When you begin to see that he did that for you, that he took the, the curse that, that we all deserve 
because of our sin upon himself, the curse, and died a sinner's death. When you begin to see that, when you begin to see that he is also raised from the dead, that he raised victorious on your behalf, not being defeated by his enemies, but also not defeating them with the sword or with political power, but by laying down his own life. When you begin to see that Jesus dove headlong into spiritual conflict, into the, into the pool of demons and the devil, by becoming the curse for us and dying the death of one who's supposed to be cursed, but rising into, when you see that with your heart, you begin to see how much God loves you. You begin to see what he's done for you because of his great love for you. And that, that's what gives us strength to stand firm. That's what gives us power to pray. That, that, that's what gives us hope in the, space of, in, the, in the face of spiritual conflict. That Jesus is victorious. That he's gone to the grave and he defeated the line of Judah became victorious by becoming a slaughtered lamb and rising again to lead his people triumphantly in victory, following the lamb into victory. So we have that. And the good news about, well, there's a lot of good news, but one of the really good news about Ashish and Sarah is that two years to the day on the death anniversary of their son Isaac, the Lord gave them a daughter, a healthy, beautiful daughter named Ira. And we gave thanks to the Lord for blessing them with that. A, a covenant memory for them of the faithfulness of God and the love of God to them. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we, we just ask right now that you would um, help us in our hearts to see not only that there is a raging spiritual conflict around us, but maybe even the greater reality of your love for us, that you love us, that you have jumped into the spiritual mess that is our world and defeated it by dying and succumbing to it, but rising again to new life, that we also may in resurrection life follow you, Lord Jesus, our champion, into victory. May you encourage our hearts and strengthen those with weak faith, humble those that are proud, and help us all to be just far more dependent and pressed into your love for us because you indeed fight for us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.